Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. This is part two of the series, The Unseen War. And what we've been talking about is the war behind the war. And war has been on people's minds for obvious reasons lately. And I've come to the conclusion by reading this scripture that this, that every conflict, marital, military, relational, legal, doesn't matter what it is, I think behind every war, there's a spiritual war. There's a spiritual battle. And what happens in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, is that Jesus shows up, and I think really for the first time in history, he pulls back the veil, and we begin to see the workings of the spiritual world that's in this other dimension. The whole New Testament's about this. We see angels showing up. We see demons showing up. We see Jesus encountering Satan in the flesh on several occasions within the Gospels. And we have a whole new revelation, a whole epiphany of the war behind the war. And then we watch Jesus start to do some extraordinary things. 25% of the supernatural things he did were actually not healings and not miracles exactly, but they were deliverances. He actually had to cast a demon out of a person in order to get them free. 25%, which is a huge, huge number. So you look at Matthew chapter 9, there's a a man, he's a mute, and Jesus casts out the mute spirit and all of a sudden he speaks. Three verses or chapters later, Matthew chapter 12, there's a man who's both blind and mute. Jesus casts out the unclean spirit and he speaks. Mark chapter 9, there's the epileptic boy who was falling in the fire, falling in the water. Jesus casts out the spirit and he's healed. And for most of us, we'd look at those things and say, well, there had to be a medical explanation for these situations. But in fact, if we look at it, we think there was no medical explanation. These were spiritual things. And what Jesus had to do is deal with the war behind the war and behind the situation. Now, keep that in mind, 25%. That means 75% of the time he did not cast out a demon spirit, that that wasn't the nature. And maybe it was medical bacteria. Maybe it was a virus. Maybe it was an injury. Maybe it was a head injury. You know, who knows? And so here becomes the challenge for us. How do we discern what is spiritual and what is natural? And that becomes the big challenge for us. And I'm not going to say that I have all the answers on this, but I think by the time we're through this, we'll have a little bit better understanding of this. So I have a story to tell you. It's Halloween night. There's a Baptist church and they're having a service because it's Sunday night, but it just happens to be Halloween. So their service is going on and there's a man going to a Halloween party and he decides he's going to go dressed like the devil. And so he has the red suit on, he's got the horns on, he's got the pitchfork, he's got the tail. He's walking down the street, heading towards his party, and all of a sudden the skies open up and it just begins to pour rain. So he ducks into the first building that he walks by to get out of the rain, and it just happens to be the church. So imagine this picture of this man dressed like the devil steps in the back door of the church, and there's a church service underway. The pastor spots him from the front and shouts to the congregation, it's the devil, run for your lives. And everybody heads for the door. One poor gal, she tripped and landed right at the feet of the devil. And she looked up at him quivering and said, I know I've been a member of this church for 20 years. But I've been on your side the whole time. (laughs) And that's definitely a true story. 
So here we are. Our text today is, is Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10. I read it last time. We'll read it again. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual wickedness in high places. So, like I said last time, there's a lot going on in this verse. Can't possibly cover it all, but we'll do our best. And so, the unseen war, I'm giving you five things. And we started it last time, and here they are. And these are the keys. This is the art of war. This is the military strategy I want you to get a hold of. The first thing is this. Number one, don't forget who your real enemy is. Number two, don't underestimate your adversary. Number three, don't make any deals with the devil. Number four, don't expect God to fight your battles for you. And number five, don't forget the devil always overplays his hand. So last time we were together, I started with this important point about don't forget who your real enemy is. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And we struggle with that. We regard our boss and our, our spouse and our, and our neighbor and our government as our enemy. How many of you, whether you want to admit it or not, how many of you like to grumble about our government? How many of you like to grumble? Really? Seriously? You're the only ones? I, really? Seven of us grumbling about? The rest of you are all good-natured people just praying for them? Good for you. Good for you. I'm going to cast out the spirit of lying in a minute. So, so, you know, we look at this situation where Jesus came in. Jesus had government a lot worse than ours by a long shot. They were under Roman occupation. I mean, the Romans were treacherous and murderous and an evil bunch, and, and they were under this totalitarian rule. They didn't even have self-determination of their own country. And they tried to draw Jesus into that battle, that political battle. You remember the story. He was asked one day, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus came up with a good answer. He said, let me see that coin. He held up the coin. He said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, that's Caesar's. To which he said, then render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And render unto God that which belongs to God. What did he do? He clearly distinguished between the two battles. And he said, I didn't come to do this. I didn't come to fight the political battle. I did not to come to fight these natural battles. We know from Jesus' missions that he came to destroy the works of the devil. That's his specific mandate, his mission. And he kept focus, and they tried to draw him away and draw him into fighting flesh and blood, but he would not do it. So I think this is one of our big challenges. How do we recognize our fights, and how do we make sure we're fighting the right battle? So I have a little story to tell you about growing up that you'll be amused by, but it'll make my point. When I was about 11 years old, uh, there was a kid across the street. His name was George, and George was a bully. There's no other way to describe him. Even to this day, when I meet someone named George, I think you must have been a bully. And that's just my own sort of self-determination of that. But nevertheless, we had George, and George was four years older than me, way bigger than me, and every day, George would beat on me. I mean, I couldn't stand George. I mean, he would grab me, he would slug me, he would throw me to the ground, he'd kick me, he'd chase me. If he ever caught me, you know what he did? He used to, some of you will remember this if you grew up when I did. He would pin me down on the ground like this and he would drool, big long loogie and drop it onto my face. Anybody ever had that happen to him? You didn't have a big brother? What world did you grow up in? 
And, and so anyway, George used to do that. And I remember one day he did that to me and I ran in the house. My dad was reading the newspaper. And I said, Dad, George across the street is bullying me. And uh, he said, well, all you have to do is stand on his feet and push him over. And I said, what? What do you mean stand on his feet and push him over? He says, it's all you have to do. You, want to, you have a book. Now, understand this, that in the 60s, if you grew up in the 60s, our dads were a little bit disconnected, I think, with reality. They didn't actually, you know, as long as we were being, as long as we didn't get killed, they didn't mind we were being bullied. If you're getting bullied, it's probably going to toughen you up. It's probably a good thing for you. So my dad, in a very disinterested way, says, just step on his feet and push him down. And I said, what? He put down his newspaper. He got up. He stood on my feet. Now understand this picture for a moment. I weighed, when I was 11, maybe 80 pounds. My dad weighed 240 pounds. How many of you are good at math on this? So my dad stands on my feet, pushes me, and guess what happened? Yeah, I fell right over my back. And I, and I got up from that and went, wow, that's the, that's the most amazing thing. I couldn't wait for the next day. Because the next day, I was going to go right up to George. I was going to step on his feet, and I was going to push him over. So the next day, there's George out in his front yard, and I just strode across the street, brimming with confidence, because in my tool belt, I was going to step on his feet. So I went and stepped on George's feet. Do you have any idea how close you have to get someone to someone to step on their feet? You, I might as well have kissed him. That's how close I was. Now, remember... He wasn't as big as my dad, but he was probably 150 pounds. I'm 80 pounds. He weighs twice as much of us. So I stood on his feet, and I pushed him. And guess what happened? <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing happened. Until he pulled a Will Smith and smacked me right across the face. <laughs> he, just, he just let me have it and knocked me right to the ground. I was bewildered. How could this not have worked? So I... So I ran in the house crying. I did not go and get further advice from my father. Love my dad, but I thought, no, I'm good. I went to my room. I'm crying. I'm lying there nursing my little injury on my face. And I'm thinking to myself, I was pretty smart at 11. This is what I decided. I thought, that's not my game. There's no way I can, I can win this battle. There's no way I want to fight this battle. Why am I trying to fight this guy physically when there's no way I'll ever be a match to him? And I made a decision at 11 years old that I was never going to engage in a physical fight with another human being for the rest of my life. You know, that was over half a century ago, and I have not been in a fight since. So far, so good, but the day's not over, right? <laughs> and, and so you say, well, Pastor Mark, how are you going to deal with your battle? I was going to use different weapons. Because I'll tell you one thing I was good at. I had a really good mouth. Not, not for hitting, for talking. I've always had the gift of the gab, and I thought, if I can't beat him physically, I can beat him verbally. He's as dumb as a post. Bullies always are. They're as dumb as a post. So I just changed my strategy. So instead of stepping on his feet... I stood across the street and I yelled at him. I said, hey, moron, I think your mother is calling you. It's time to get your diapers changed. I say, Pastor Mark, you sound like you're taunting him. I was. He said, what'd you do then? I ran. <laughs> and I'm across the street. I ran into the house and locked the door. What would you do? Discretion is the better part of valor. 
Sure, he egged our house a few times, but that wasn't my problem. That was my father's problem. He owned the house. If he wants to step on his feet, he can go ahead. I'm not stepping on George's feet anymore. But it was a good lesson for me because I recognized something that we often fight the battles that we can't win. And maybe what we need to be doing is rethinking this because the scripture says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, natural, but mighty in the Lord for the pulling down of strongholds. Do you remember the story when David went into battle against Goliath and the first thing he tried to do was he put on Saul's armor? How would he have done in that battle? He would have lost that battle because he was going to try to fight that battle in the, in the natural, and there was no way, man for man, David against Goliath, he was going to beat this guy. So he says to him, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts of the armies of God. In other words, he said, I'm coming to you with different weapons. And he went in and he defeated him. So the first thing for us to remember is simply this, is that we don't want to forget who our real enemy is, and sometimes we make the big mistake of fighting the wrong enemy. Second thing is this, is don't underestimate your adversary. See, the scripture tells us this, that the thief comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy. Those, that's his threefold strategy. All those things are bad. Steal from you, kill from you, destroy from you, and we look around the world, and when we see the destruction of our world, when we see the mayhem and the violence and the hatred and the sexual abuse, and we see the long list of terrible and horrible and despicable things that we see in the world, we need to understand that those things by nature are demonic. And we have underestimated the power of the devil in the world. Now, the great example, I've been using it through this series, is Vladimir Putin. The world underestimated the evil nature of Vladimir Putin. We had, we had actually politicians, some of you know who they are, that were actually complimenting him on his leadership skills. And I, and I think, what is wrong with these people? Why could they not see the evil nature of this man? It wasn't like he became uh, you know, evil a few months ago when he started an attack against Ukraine. He's been like this his whole life. He spent 16 years in the KGB, and he was an intelligence officer for 16 years for Russia, lying, cheating, deceiving, murdering, espionage, treachery. Uh, he becomes president. And let me tell you something. This, this bad behavior of his didn't just start recently. He has already invaded Crimea six years ago. There are thousands and thousands of people that have died at the hands of Putin. He has imprisoned and he has murdered his opponents, people that have been his critics. He has poisoned people. You've all read the story about the two that he poisoned with plutonium in their tea in London, and they died a horrible and miserable death of radiation sickness. His, his number one opponent politically, Navalny, he poisoned him with a nerve agent, banned, of course, didn't happen to kill him, the man returns to Russia only to be imprisoned, and he's in prison to this day. And what the world did, and I think you can probably agree with this, is they underestimated their adversary and just how evil this man was. So one of the examples I've been using, the metaphor, is I've been using the war in Ukraine to describe the spiritual war that we're in in the human race. So I'm going to throw it up once again. This is a picture of, of, of Europe. And what we see there is we see Ukraine in the middle. And on the west side, or sorry, on the east side, we have Russia, the, the Great Bear, the, the Red Russians on, on that side. And on the other side, we see the NATO countries. 
And they, Ukraine has been stuck in the middle for hundreds of years of their history, pulled and tossed back and forth by the East and the West for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now it's come to a head in this war in the Ukraine. And the metaphor that I'm using is this is that we are in some ways we should identify with Ukraine because humanity is stuck in the middle between two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness on one side and the kingdom of God on the other side. And we are in this dynamic tension. We are in this battleground. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this. So the first two things that I already mentioned is don't, don't forget who your real enemy is and don't underestimate your enemy. The third thing is this. And this is where I'm going today. Don't make any deals with the devil. And one of the things that we've seen, and a lot of people haven't picked up on this, but you're going to today, one of the reasons why NATO hasn't been as much help as people think they should be, lots of people say they should do a no-fly zone, other people say they should come and fight with Ukraine and, and push back the Russians, but there's a significant reason why they can't. They have made deals with the devil. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that most of Europe gets their energy from Russia. Russia supplies most of the energy. How can you fight against somebody that you're in bed with? How can you fight against someone that you're relying on their oil? Let me just show you the numbers. Here's the numbers. 47% of all the coal in the European Union, all those countries that I showed you a moment ago, 47% of it comes from Russia. Look at the next one. Their natural gas, 41% comes from Russia. The next one is their crude oil, 29%, 27% rather, comes from Russia. And so here's the picture I don't want you to miss. Europe is reliant on the energy that comes from Russia. They've made a deal with the devil. They're in bed with Russia, whether they like it or not. They, can't, they can talk tough, but at the end of the day, they can't really attack Russia because they are depending on Russia. If they were to cut off the energy supplies coming into Europe, the economies of those countries would collapse in a week. It would be done. And so there's not a lot they can do. They're talking about cutting off those energy supplies, but they've made a deal with the devil. And the point I'm making in all of this, and you're probably going to get this, is that we do the same thing in modern life. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I'll show you. We look at this verse. It's Ephesians chapter 4. It says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And the example that Paul's using there in Ephesians is, is wrath. Is one of the deadly sins, but there's a whole bunch of more sins, isn't there? And uh, he could have substituted any other sin. He could have talked about lust or greed or anger or hatred or murder or, uh, you know, gossip or any number of sins. And what he's saying is, is if you're going to live in wrath or sin or whatever these things in, what you're doing is you're making place for the devil. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, don't make a place. Don't give him a foothold. See, what happens is if you live like the devil... Don't think for a minute that you can live like the devil on one hand and then when you want to push him back and when you want to fight him that you somehow have any credence or ability to defeat him. You don't. You were in bed with him. You made a deal with the devil. Anybody who's ever watched mafia movies, they all have the same plot line. And this is what happens. Somebody gets involved with the mafia. They are now beholden. They can't leave. They can't betray them because if they do, the mob will come and kill their whole family. How many movies have you seen like that? There's hundreds and hundreds of movies like that. The devil works the same way. Once you make a deal with the devil, you are beholden to the devil. And the scripture says that you have been taken captive to do his will when we willingly sin. So let me show you the difference between us and Jesus. I don't know, I don't know if you knew there was a difference, but, but there is. 
And here's what it says about Jesus. It's John chapter 14. And he says, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Did you catch that? He has nothing in me. And I know Jesus had some obvious advantages over us. Did you know that? I mean, he was born a sinless man. He's the son of God. All those things are a help. And, and we look at him. He's a sinless man. And he says, you know what? The devil can't touch me because he has nothing in me. And you look at Jesus' life. Every single time he did battle with the devil, he won. Correct? Every single time. Because the devil didn't, they couldn't even kill him. Do you remember the time they tried to push him off the cliff? Do you remember this? A mob tried to push him off the cliff. Do you remember what the scripture says? And it says he walked through in the midst of them. And you know, even his own life, people think, you know, say, well, who killed him, the Jews or the Romans? The answer is neither. He says, nobody takes my life, I lay down my life. They couldn't even kill him because the ruler of this world has come and they have found nothing in him. So the bottom line of what I'm saying is this is that we can't give place to the enemy in our lives. And what we do when we fall into sin, when we let sin take a hold of our lives, it says we have been snared by the devil. And we're beholden when we can't fight him and we can't defeat him because we're in bed with him. We've made a deal with the devil. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to be perfect because, you know, Jesus was Jesus. I get that. We're, We're far from perfect, every one of us. But that doesn't mean that we have to make a deal with the devil. Now, there's something, this is going to really help, I think, you understand this. There's this little verse in the Sermon on the Mount. I know you've all read it. In fact, when I quote it, you're going to be able to finish it. But I'll tell you, people have have not understood it. And it goes like this. Jesus says, if your eye offends you, what did he tell you to do with it? (laughs) You pluck it out. See, I knew you'd know. He says, if your hand offends you, what should you do with it? Cut it off and cast it away. Now, here's my question. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we ever see even one single example of somebody plucking out their eye or cutting off their hand in Scripture? Why wasn't he lining people up, plucking out eyes and cutting off hands? Why? Because he wasn't talking literally. He wasn't telling you to pluck out your eye. He wasn't telling you to cut off your hand. What was he saying? He was saying, if you are snared by this thing, You need to care enough about it to get rid of it out of your life. You need to cast it away. He wasn't talking about your hand or your eye. He was talking about whatever the sin is behind your hand or your eye or whatever. How many of you have ever seen this movie with James Franco called 127 Hours? Anybody seen this movie? Just a couple people in the the room. You're not missing too much, actually. I'll tell you this story, though, because it's interesting. It's a true story based on the narrative of of, uh, Aaron Ralston, and he's this hiker, and he's a a mountaineer guy, and he loves to go into the hills, the barren hills and rocks of Arizona, and he'd climb, and he'd do it by himself. And one particular day, he he did that, and uh, he was climbing down this chasm, I guess you'd call it, this rock chasm, and a huge boulder, 800 pounds, rolled down and onto his hand, and he was trapped. And here's the picture from the movie. This is James Franco playing Aaron Ralston. You can see his arm is trapped by that boulder. And he sat there trapped for 127 hours. It's over five days. And what he had his backpack, so what food he had, he ate. What water he had, he drank. He yelled, he screamed. There was nobody around. He wasn't going to be rescued. And he realized he was in trouble. He videotaped a goodbye. He had his camera with him. He videotaped a goodbye to his family when they did finally find his body. On the fifth day, he's, he's dehydrated. 
He knows he's at the end. He knows he's, he's dying. He smells something dreadful. And it's his rotting arm is what it was. And he realized this, that there was no way he, his arm was dead. His arm was gone, so he didn't have to worry about his arm. And he made a decision in his final moments of his life that what he was going to do, and it's a brutal saying, is he levers it and he breaks his arm and then he cuts his hand off with a pocket knife. He's now free. And he wraps it and he goes out and he stumbles across some other hikers and they save him, he gets to the hospital, his life is saved. He is spared. And he realized what he had to do was he had to cut off his hand and cast it away. That it was the thing that was trapping him and in order to get free, he had to jettison this thing from his being. And the picture that Jesus is painting in the Sermon on the Mount is if there's something that's trapped you, you've got to cut it off and you've got to get rid of it. So I have a story I want to tell you about a friend of mine. His name is Ty. It's going to be very personal, but he's told this story many times. You could read it online. So it's not like it's private. And uh, Ty grew up uh, always with a same-sex attraction to other men, boys, right from the beginning, right from puberty. And he always struggled with this. And then as a young adult, he became a Christian, and he still struggled with it. And then he met this girl, and he fell in love with her, and he married her, and he believed, he really truly believed that now that he was a Christian, and if he married this woman, that he would be free from those same-sex attraction issues that he had. So he married the woman. He had three daughters with that woman. And all through those years, those early years, he never lost that same-sex attraction. He kept on acting on it. He fell again and again and again with many different men several times through his marriage. He lived in shame. He lived in guilt. He didn't want to be doing this. He figured getting married to a woman would, 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 would spare him from this, that those tendencies and those desires would be gone, but, but they never were. Now, I understand in today's world, there's all kinds of people that would say, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. I understand their understanding on that, but, but here's what I want to say. No matter what your view on this is, he was betraying his wife. He was, he was being unfaithful. He was lacking fidelity. He was betraying his family. He was betraying his children. He was betraying his church. He was betraying his, his faith. And he knew what he was doing was wrong. And there's a, it's a longer story that I don't have time to get into, but he decided he had to work and do something really radical to get rid of that part of his life and never to act on it again. And there was a whole series of things that he went and he did and he was able to get free from it. And he ended up starting a ministry in Winnipeg here called Living Waters, reaching out and helping other men and women that were struggling with the same kinds of things and using the same strategies he used to get free from these things. Now, let me tell you a little, a little caveat on this. I've known him for many, many years and throughout all this time of running this ministry, it didn't mean those temptations never went, went away. They never went away. He still had those attractions come from time to time. The difference was he never acted on them. And even Jesus, don't forget, the temptation is not the sin. It says Jesus was tempted in all points, even as we, without sin. So temptation is not the sin. The thing you have to get rid of is acting on the temptation. And Ty was able to get free from that and when he retired from this ministry, I love this part of the story, his daughter, one of his daughters, took over the ministry from him and carried it on in his retirement. You know what that tells me? That tells me, because your kids know who you are. And 
His daughter knew that this imperfect man was genuine and he was authentic and he was a man of integrity and she carried on the work that he began. But he understood this principle. If something offends you, you cut it off. Isn't that a great story though? Especially about the daughter. And one of the most powerful weapons we have in our tool belt is this. And it is the power of repentance. And this is what it says in 1 John 1, 9. You all know it. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. He says, if you go to him, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ the Lord. And if we take it to him, he will make us free. And it's, one, it's guilt and it's shame that often holds us into that bondage. And I love what was once said, and it goes like this. When the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. And every single one of us can be free because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. So there we have that point. We don't make deals with the devil. And the fourth thing is this, is that we have to, don't expect to fight, sorry, don't expect God to fight your battles for you. Don't expect God to fight your battles We all know the verse that says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I know we hate that verse. Why is the devil your adversary? Because he is. God kicked him out of heaven. He's in earth, and that's where you are. And so he has become our adversary. And one of the challenges we have when we read the Old Testament in particular we kind of get this idea that God will fight our battles for us. You see verses that sort of indicate that. Wow, just stand back and see the salvation of God. And we even sang it today. We sang the song, the battle belongs to the Lord. We go, oh, it's so nice. I don't have to do anything because the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you know who it was who said that in scripture? It was King David. And he said these words in particular. He said, the battle is the Lord's. Oh, I like that. The battles of the Lord's. Do you know when he said that? Do you want to know? Bet you can't guess. Let me tell you the exact context of when he said, the battle is the Lord's. He said it just before he ran into battle against Goliath. Did you catch that? The battle is the Lord's because here I go. And he ran into battle knowing that the battle was the Lord's. It wasn't that the Lord was going to fight the battle for him. The Lord was going to win the battle for him. That's what it means when he says the battle is the Lord's. He means the Lord's, the victory is the Lord's. We can rely on Jesus to win that battle for us. Isn't that good news? But don't think for a moment. Don't think for a moment he's going to fight the battles for you. So let's go back to Ukraine for a moment. So, you know, some people are unhappy that the NATO countries aren't moving in. And they're not fighting the battle for Ukraine. You've all been following this in the news. And they say, why isn't there a no-fly zone? Why aren't, why aren't these countries coming and joining Ukraine and fighting against Russia? Well, I gave you one reason. Let's, let me give you another reason. They're afraid, probably rightfully, that if they go in, then they're going to have the Third World War in Europe. And they know that any country that attacks Russia in Ukraine is now a justifiable target. And there will be bombs flying all over Europe. Now, you can accept that or not accept that. But I'm just telling you, this is what the mindset is. And so what we have is a situation here where the NATO countries will not fight Ukraine's battle for them. But here's the part I don't want you to miss. They are arming the Ukrainians to the teeth. Have you been watching this? 
Have you been watching the armaments coming in? The U.S. has already sent $2 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine. The countries all over the world are sending in these incredibly powerful weapons. Let me, let me show it to you on the screen. See, here, there you have Ukraine there. You have Russia on the one side. All those blue countries, these are the countries sending military aid to Ukraine. All those blue and all those light blue countries are all NATO countries. And they are arming them to the The only one that's not a NATO country is Sweden, up at the top there in the yellow, and they're sending arms as well. And have you seen the pictures of these armaments coming into Ukraine? It's incredible. I mean, they're sending these pictures. Let's show some of these pictures. They're sending in all these amazing weapons. I could give you this big, long list, but I don't want to bore you with it. I just want to show you one weapon because it's kind of my personal favorite. I don't know if you've been watching these. This is the Javelin anti-tank missile. Have you, been, have you been watching these things? These things, they're coming in by the thousands and thousands and thousands into Ukraine, and they're giving them these weapons to be able, this is why they've been able to push back these tanks that were coming into Kiev and did not manage to get there because they've been sitting in the woods with these things and blowing up these tanks. And let me show you a picture of it because it's an incredible weapon. It's a one-man handheld weapon, and you put it on your shoulder, you, you, you aim at your target, there's an infrared signal, you push go, you push the trigger, the weapon does the rest of it. It shoots this missile out, the missile is now guided, it's now had the coordinates set in, it flies up like this, it comes straight down on the top of the tank and blows it to smithereens. Because the top of the tank is more vulnerable than the armor on the sides of the tank, and so they're blowing these tanks to pieces and I'm looking at this weapon. It's $175,000. Each one of those missiles is 100 grand. Expensive, but I'm seriously considering getting one for goose hunting this fall. <laughs> I mean, you know I hate geeses to pieces. And I think this would, I think this would do just the trick. I, I, I love this next picture. You're going to have to forgive me on this one. Look at this next picture. I have a caption for this. Hey, Igor, what happens if I push this button? <laughs> Don't, look at that looks in their face. What's this button? What happens if I push this button? <laughs> now, I'm not trying to make fun of them. They're in a terrible, terrible situation. I'm trying to make fun of you. Because here's what I think. I don't think we've recognized the weapons of our warfare. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in the Lord for the pulling down of strongholds. And you say, Pastor Mark, what are our weapons? See, he's done a bunch of things. First of all, it says he's disarmed our enemy, Right? He disarmed principalities and powers, and then he has given us all these weapons. And this message is not about our weapons. This is about military strategy. This is about the art of war. But let's not forget what the weapons are. We have, I talked about last time, humility. We talked about repentance. There's worship. There's prayer. There's the name of Jesus. There's the armor of God. There's a whole bunch of spiritual weapons but what we do is we don't talk about basic training. And what we do is we say, well, what's my weapon? I want to use my weapon. And we don't know the rest of it. So what I'm really teaching you in this series is the, the art of war. So I want to tell you a little story uh, to close out this point. 35 years ago when we began this church, you, you got a small church, you got 50 people or whatever it was. And if a, one disruptive person came in, then... It actually made a mess of everything. They could cause so much trouble. Today, we have disruptive people. The church is too big. They can't cause too much mayhem. But in a church of 50 people, one person could make a big difference and really be destructive. So we had this woman join the church, 
And she was a piece of work. She was a gossip. She was divisive. She was always dividing people and manipulating. It drove me crazy. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this woman? And I decided, I, I figured out who she was from Paul's writing where he said, I have received a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan sent to buffet me. And a lot of people think that, that you know, because commentators have said this, that, that somehow, you know, a physical sickness or an eye disease or something. Not so. You go research thorn in the flesh in scripture, more often than not, it was a person. And a thorn in the flesh sent to buffet me a messenger from Satan. How many of you had one of these thorns in the flesh? How many of you had one? How, how many of you have been married to one? No, no, no. no. <laughs> so, so I really felt like that, and I thought, I've got to fight. See, here's what I wanted to do. I'll tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to kick her butt out of the church. That's what I wanted to do, but I knew that was not the right weapon. And so I just was praying. I said, Lord, you've got to help me with this. So anyway, it was January. We were doing our three days of prayer and fasting, which we've been doing for 35 years in this church. And uh, we were meeting every night, and we were getting about a dozen people out every night. It was the third night. We had a circle of chairs in the sanctuary, and there we were sitting there, about 11 of us, because we had 12 chairs out. And who should walk in but her? And I went, oh, really? Sometimes I whine. And, and, I, and I was, oh, really, Lord? You had to bring her out tonight. We were having such a good prayer meeting, and now you brought her. So anyway, she sits down, and she was actually on pretty good behavior that night. And while we were praying, the Spirit of God came in such a powerful way in the room. And then something happened I've never seen before. Maybe most of you have never seen something like this. But anyway, all of a sudden, she fell out of her chair, rolled to the middle of the circle. Are you ready for this? Started to writhe like a snake and hiss. And I thought, this has confirmed what I've believed the whole time. I mean, she was writhing like a snake and hissing. I'm sure most of you have not seen this. I know some of our African friends say they have. But anyway, so she's writhing like a snake and hissing. Well, people went nuts. They'd never seen this. We had some people jumping up on their chairs. Ah! Like they had seen a mouse. I said, that's not a mouse. That's a demon. That's worse than a mouse. And then we had a couple other people who got real excited and started pulling an R.W. Schumbach. Come out in the name of Jesus. And then they're shouting and doing these deliverances. And the whole thing got completely out of hand. She's writhing and hissing and people are yelling and screaming and running. And I thought, I better get control of this meeting. I'm supposed to be the pastor. And so I said, okay. I'm like, okay, just calm down. Do we have authority over these things or not? And we do. I said, let's just lay hands on her and let's just pray for whatever this thing is in the name of Jesus to leave. And we called that thing out of her and all of a sudden she convulsed and she got up and her eyes went clear and she sat down in her chair and said, so what's going on? And she was perfectly fine. Just like the story of the madman of Gadara. After Jesus cast the legion of demons out of him, he was sitting clothed and in his right mind, God has given us authority over all of the power of the enemy. Last and final thing, and I'll crash land the message with this. The last and final thing is this, is that don't forget the devil always overplays his hand. It's really true. You look into scripture. Uh, Pharaoh overplayed his hand. Nebuchadnezzar overplayed his hand. Sennacherib overplayed his hand. Even in the New Testament, 
The scripture tells us that Satan overplayed his hand with Jesus in the crucifixion. It said, had the rulers of this age known, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. The very thing that they thought was ending Jesus actually empowered him and was the thing that caused the redemption, the plan of the redemption to come to pass. And so this is how God works. He waits for the devil to overplay his hand. Second World War, just give you a tiny little history lesson here. Do you know that near the end of the war, for all intents and purposes, Hitler was going to win that war? Germany would have won that war. There was every sign that he was going to win. And had he won, which it looked like he was going to, we'd all be speaking German today. Or at least low German. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, But that's what happened in the last year of the war is Hitler overplayed his hand. And what he did was in the middle of their their press on the Western Front, he decided to dilute his armies and he attacked Russia at the same time. You can look it up, your your history. And he was the middle of the winter, his troops got bogged down in the snow in Russia, and that's when the Allies defeated him when he had weakened himself. He had overplayed his hand. And here's the thing I always remember. When 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 I look at Putin, I think Putin has overplayed his hand. That's just my opinion. And I think I think he'll pay the price for it. I think he did not realize the response and the reaction he was going to get from the world once he's gone. But I think it's also true with you. And when I'm in my darkest moments, when I think everything's going south, when I feel like the devil is beating me up, I always remember he's probably overplaying his hand. And that's the time when I'm going to rise up and be the man of God that I'm meant to be because I have read the end of the book. And guess what, people? We win. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And if God be for us, who can be against? Let's give the Lord a shout. Let's stand together. All right. You should be well equipped for the rest of your life. But let's start where we are. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there may be people in the room today that have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. You haven't started the journey. Chances are you're getting beaten up by the devil right now. And so nobody's looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here, you've never made that decision, that definitive decision that you're going to be a follower of Christ, that you're going to walk in his way. I want to give you that opportunity to do that today. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can see it. Just signal me from wherever you are. Once I've seen it, you can put it down again. Just take a moment. All right, anybody else? Yeah, just take a moment. Okay, let's uh, all pray together because I said I wouldn't single anybody out. And this is going to be a prayer to engage in our battle as well. Are you ready for this? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. Because you disarm powers and principalities. And you redeem me from my past. And you set my feet on a rock. And you rose again on the third day. And you forever lived to be my Lord. And you have equipped me. You have empowered me. And you have armed me for battle. And you have given me the name. The name of Jesus. The name above every name that is named. And at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That the battle is the Lord's. 
because you have led me into victory. And I will fight my battles, and I will win my battles because Jesus is on my side. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a shout today, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 